Zach Evans podcast with my father, Zach Evans. Uh, that's the cutest intro ever. I do welcome you in to another episode of the Zach Evans podcast. Thank you for being here. I uh, do want to thank you for the wonderful response to the Easter episode last week. Conversation with my father, of course, and we kind of dove deep into the debate, the controversy about what place Easter has as a holiday in the Christian calendar, and the misunderstanding really is what it is between the words like Easter and Ishtar. If you haven't watched that, I would really suggest doing so. Uh, You can watch the video episode on Spotify, but it was a runaway success, a ton of downloads, super quick compared to the norm. Our audience size jumped up considerably, so I really thank you for listening, sharing, watching, It was a huge success, and um, that just shows that we need to do more of these kinds of conversations. That's really the vision for this podcast, is to be able to sit down with anybody and talk to them about things that are pertinent and important to the Christian life. So a few things that we need to do that, one is suggestions. If you have a suggestion on somebody that you think would make for a great conversation, I would love to know. And you can go on social media, contact us, and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest. I already have a couple more, I won't say lined up, but in the works. And we'll do those on a regular basis. But that was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. And look forward to doing more of those. I do want to mention that we we have big plans. We've got big plans. A lot of things that we want to do moving forward. And really all of that is made possible by you guys. First of all, by listening, by sharing, commenting. And and by the way, the biggest thing you could possibly do on social media is to share the posts. It it makes a huge difference. And so if you could just kind of be like, hey, you know what? When I see a post, I'm going to share it. I'm going to like, I'm going to comment, I'm going to share. It makes a massive difference. I really appreciate those who do that. But that increases our reach big time. But another big thing, this mic I'm talking into was purchased with donations the mics now that we're using to record the Sunday audio, the conversation audio, all purchased with donations. And there's a lot of other things that we're looking forward to do, but it's all going to come through those donations. So if you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can become a monthly supporter. We have a few of those already. I'm very thankful for each one. And you can do that by clicking the link in the show notes. And you can find that whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, It should be available on any platform. Just kind of scroll down underneath the episode, and you should see the recap, the show episode notes. And at the bottom of that, there should be a link, and you can click that link and learn how you can donate. So for today, we are going to talk about envy. And specifically, we're going to dive into a psalm, Psalm 73, written by a man named Asaph. And we are going to entitle this Asaph's Fable, kind of a play on Aesop's fables. And the idea there is that Asaph kind of crafts this narrative in his mind as he observes the life of the wicked, and he sees how prosperous they are, healthy they are, their family's in a good position, everything seems to be going well for the wicked, and then he compares that with himself— as a priest, as someone who's working day in, day out, as a choir director for David and Solomon, and he compares the life of the wicked with his life, and he sees the disparity. He says, I'm poor and they're rich. I'm sickly and they're healthy. I'm struggling to have peace, and their life is full of prosperity, peace, and security. And the fable of it, to some extent, is the idea that that is all there is. And from one perspective, that's all there seems to be, is it's a zero-sum game, and we're all fighting for the same resources, and they have what I want, and so what's the point of living this secluded and righteous life? And Asaph really bears his heart. He's very honest in Psalm 73. And what I want to do is just work through his thought process how he was really struggling to be content with the Christian life, with a righteous life, with a priestly life. He's struggling to not envy the wicked. And so 
Eventually, though, at the end of the chapter, he gets to the place where he's fully trusting in God. And it's a really interesting progression. And I think it'll, I think it'll help you because I know everyone struggles with this topic of envy. And so I pray that it'll be a blessing to you as we jump into that topic of Asaph's fable and discuss the problem of envy. So please follow the podcast, give us five stars, leave a glowing review, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Zach Evans Podcast. So here we go. We'll jump right into Asaph's fable. Enjoy. Psalm 73, verse 16. We're going to kind of come to the transitional statement of this chapter, if you can think about it that way. But the psalmist says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. I'll give the context for this, and really, this chapter preaches itself. This is one of the, and hopefully I don't flub it up, but one of the easiest chapters in the Bible to preach, because all you have to do is just reiterate what the psalmist is saying. He preaches the sermon for you, but I do want to point some things out. But I was, uh, I was preaching in a teen camp in New Orleans a couple years ago, and the teenagers were giving some testimonies. And one of the girls said that her family was having a difficult time, and um, she gave some details, but basically she said this. She said, I don't understand why when I'm going to church and I'm doing right and I'm reading my Bible and I'm trying to live the Christian life, my life is so bad. And I look at my friends who do all the things that we say not to do, and they seem happy, Their mom and dad are together. Mine aren't. She listed a set of things. Like, why is that the case? Why is it that I'm living the life that you preachers say someone should live, and yet my life is terrible, and all of my friends are living a life the Bible says not to live, and they all seem great and fine and happy and content? And this is an observation I think everybody at some point in their life has made. It's a comparison that a lot of people have made. And it could be very just a moment for you, or it could be something that you really struggle with. In the case of the psalmist here, it's something that he really battled with. He wrestled with this dilemma so deeply that it made it into our Bible, when you think about that. That's very interesting. But I want to examine what he has to say here in his own words I want you to notice if you look above the chapter in your Bible, you should have a little inscription above verse 1. If you notice above verse 1, it says a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph was a Levite priest, a prophet, and he was the minister of music for David and Solomon. And although this inscription could mean a lot of things, according to what I've read, it doesn't necessarily mean that Asaph wrote this psalm, but that seems like the most obvious explanation. We tend to approach the book of Psalms like if you ask a child, who wrote the book of Psalms? They say, David. Well, you're not wrong. He wrote a lot of them, but there's actually seven different authors in the book of Psalms. We have David, Solomon, his son, Asaph, Korah, Moses, and uh, Ethan, and then also my favorite name of one of the authors of the book of Psalms, He-Man, that's true, He-Man the Ezraite. I mean, that is, that is awesome. But there's also 50 Psalms that don't have a listed author, and we don't exactly know who wrote them. But Asaph, it seems like, is the author of this psalm, and it reads very similar to some of the others, but I think he, his style is a little different than David's when you start to look at it, but If we assume that Asaph wrote this, what is he going through? I want you to notice verse 1. In verse 1, he says, Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now, this verse is very different from the verses that follow. What Asaph does is he begins with his conclusion. He tells you where he's going to end up in this psalm, and he takes you on the journey between this statement and to some extent, the process by which he came to realize it was true. So he begins by saying, look, God is good. I know God is good. Truly, you might say like in the New Testament, verily, verily, God is good to us. But this was not evident to Asaph at first. Like the young lady at camp, this was not evident 
evident to her that God was inherently good to the righteous. And of course, Asaph is talking in Old Testament terms when he says God is good to Israel. We might say in New Testament terms, God is good to the righteous. Of course, God is good to everyone to some extent. He makes it to reign on the just and the unjust. But I want you to notice verse 2. He says, but as for me, Asaph identifying himself as an individual within Israel that doesn't feel like he is experiencing the goodness of God in actuality. So in verse 1, he says, God is good to Israel corporately. And I know that that's true. But me individually, day to day, just going through life, what does he say? But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. We might rephrase it and say, there's no doubt in my mind now that God is good to those who love him, but I really struggled with this for a while. And it almost caused me to mess up. And that's Asaph's story. So the question is, what exactly caused Asaph to question the goodness of God to the righteous? All right, look at verse 3. He says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's envious at the foolish. Why? Because they are prospering. The wicked are prosperous. And he's frustrated by that. Why are these wicked people doing so well? Why are they getting away with taking advantage of the little guy? What is going on? And this is, to some extent, his envy, of course, and his frustration, is a natural conclusion of his observation of the wicked. So he observes their life, and he's expecting maybe like immediate tragedy and God to pour out his judgment and wrath on them, and then it doesn't happen. They seem happy and blessed and everything's fine. And then the result of that observation is comparison. And there's a lesson for us there, that you have to be very careful what you set your observation on. Because observation leads to comparison. And this is why people who fundamentally have a very observing nature in regards to other people tend to be very jealous and envious people. And look, there's something all throughout the Bible, this is very interesting and I can't really get into this right now, but it's about your attention. Your attention. How many times does the Bible say, look? Look. What is looking? Think about in the Old Testament, I might have explained this before, when the brazen serpent is crafted on the pole. Think about this. The brazen serpent is crafted on the pole, and it's lifted up, and Moses says, look at it and you'll live. What? Looking will, like, medically heal you? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Just look at it. It's more than the act of physical looking. It is directing attention. And there's something about that which you direct your attention to that has huge implications on yourself spiritually, physically, emotionally. We live in a time when our attention is just split up all over the place. The, the pie chart of our attention looks like one of those Chinese fans when you fan it out. I mean, it's just like there's no big chunk of our attention that goes to any one thing. We are distracted people. And that's bad. That's really bad. Asaph is struggling to properly direct his attention. So basically what's happening is Asaph has a worldview whereby he interprets the actions of other people, right? So he's looking at the foolish saying, well, according to my worldview, they are wicked. Therefore, God should punish them. And he's sitting back waiting for it to happen, just observing it's not taking place. In fact, they're, they're getting richer. They're happy. They're healthy. Their kids are okay. There's no car accident. It seems like their life is increasingly better and better and better. And he starts to question his worldview as a result of this observation and comparison. All right, so I want you to notice some of the observations that he's making about the wicked. Look at verse 3, obviously. It says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph was envious of the fact that the wicked were prospering. And this word prosperity here is, it means more than just an in increase in riches. It means uh, the actual word is shalom in Hebrew, which of course, you know, means peace. So it's the peace and prosperity of the wicked. It's the fact not only are their riches increasing, but they seem at peace. They're not having a tough life. They have a free and easy life, and Asaph is envious of that because he's comparing it with his life that isn't exactly peaceful and prosperous. So this implies, of course, that Asaph didn't have the best life, and this is where the comparison comes in. Asaph 
is a priest, he's a prophet, he's David's choir director, he's a good man, he's trying to live the right life, but he's struggling to have peace. And, you know, we, we might say that we're not guilty of this, okay? We might say, well, I'm not really guilty of being envious of the wicked. That seems pretty extreme, right? Asaph, though, I think what he's doing is he is expressing in very blatant terms what we all do kind of in the background of our heart, so we would never say it in those terms. We wouldn't say, well, I'm really envious of wicked people. I mean, I watch people that they're just so wicked. <laughs> and I just like, wow, I mean, I really wish that I could have their... No one would say it like that. But the proof of our inward disposition, you might say, is our priorities. And what we have done, I think, even in the Christian world, is we have adopted the priorities of the world into our heart and life and that is the proof of our envy the proof of the fact that we actually envy the secular world is we have adopted their priorities and we've said okay well i define success the same way that you define success i don't have it you do therefore i'm envious of you you can reverse engineer to some extent the root of our envy by looking at our priorities Asaph is just more honest. <laughs> Asaph is very honest because of the process that he's gone through. We tend to mimic the values of secular society, and for the most part, we fail to adhere to biblical principles when it comes to well-being. Now, here's something that is frustratingly true. What's it? There's a famous commentator that says, facts don't care about your feelings. Okay, here's the thing. I don't feel good about this fact. I don't like this fact. And I think many Christians would assume, once I say this, that that's not true and that the Bible would speak against this, but it actually doesn't. Okay, previous knowledge indicated that personal happiness and well-being was only affected by income up to about $75,000, not adjusted for inflation. Now that'd be like a quarter of a million. But uh, like $75,000, maybe that's $100,000 in today's money, I don't know. But Previous research showed that, well, after you make about $75,000 or so as an individual, an increase in income doesn't affect your well-being. We now, it now seems, I'm not going to say that we know, it now seems that that's not true. So there have been more detailed studies on that subject. And again, we could disagree with the study, but let's just mention it, that actually there is a linear relationship between an increase in money and an increase in well-being. And it doesn't seem to start to depart on the scale until about $600,000 a year. About $600,000 a year, you might see a little bit of a dip. Now, us poor people wish that wasn't true. And we look at all these people, we got to talk, and we say, hey, we use the uh, famous Bible verse, more money, more problems. <laughs> That's not in the Bible. Actually, the Bible says that money answereth all things. And you think about that, that money can fix a lot of your problems. And that's true, and the Bible speaks to that. We assume that the higher you go up in income, the less it's associated with your well-being. That is not necessarily true. And it does appear that greater income levels are associated with higher levels of happiness and well-being. Now, if that's true, and it appears that it is, then Asaph's envy of the wicked's prosperity seems to be justified at first. At first, he would say, wait a second, I have chosen this monastic life. He's a priest, right? I have chosen this monastic, quarantined kind of life, and all of these other people are living completely outside the bounds of Scripture, and they're rich, and they're happy, and they're healthy. And we might say, no, Asaph, you're wrong. They're unhappy. And they're, this, this is the argument that we make all the time against people who have money. We say, listen, you don't know. They are really unhappy. It's like, how do you know that? You don't know that. You assume that. You want that to be true. What this does is this forces us to go on the shallow philosophy of, well, they're not happy because of all the money that they have. So for someone like Asaph, who I'm sure has been told, I'm sure they had colloquialisms that you know, basically said the same thing that we say, money doesn't buy happiness, there's this annoying reality that he's understanding maybe to be true as he observes the lives of the rich. So then, of course, the observation leads to comparison, and maybe if his, in his situation, what is he doing? He is sacrificing, maybe ideally he thinks, I'm sacrificing prosperity for peace, though. 
right? So if the assumption is, no, 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 the more money you have, the less peace that you have, the more problems that you have. If we assume that's true, then we might trade prosperity for peace. And maybe that's what Asaph thought he was doing. Hey, I don't have a ton of money, but I'm at rest. I'm at peace. I'm happy. I'm blessed. Everything's good. God's blessing me in non-material ways. Amen. Asaph can't say that. Asaph's like, I'm sick. I don't feel good. My life stinks. This is ridiculous. He doesn't have peace. So he's annoyed that the people who don't live right have all the things that he wants, material and non-material, at first. That's what it appears. That'll make you question your devotion for sure. All right, verse 4. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. This is another misconception to some extent. Asaph notices the ease of their death. And what he does, again, he observes the death of the wicked and compares it with the death of the righteous. There's observation and comparison. And what he's expecting, I think, it seems that this is what the verse implies, that he's expecting a great disparity between the death of the wicked and the death of the righteous. He is expecting, oh yeah, they had this great life. They had all that money. They were healthy until the end. They were happy until the end. But you should have seen the way they died. And preachers love to tell those stories. Right? We love to tell the stories of deathbed conversions and deathbed wailings and all that kind of stuff. We love those stories. But by and large, right, those types of stories are on the extremes. They're at the end of the spectrums. If you were to go into a hospital and you were to watch people pass, saved and unsaved, it's very unlikely you not knowing their situation would be able to divine from that who was saved and who was lost. Uh, we have a, a friend, Jenny Warren, whose husband passed away. Uh, from cancer. And the way he died was horrific, absolutely horrific. And I won't retell the story, but she has told the story and it's tough to hear. It's really tough to listen to. This was a saved, godly, devoted man who died in absolute agony. And here Asaph is seeing these poor Christians die. They're suffering. They're sickly. And they're crying out until the last moment of their death. And then here's these rich, wicked folks who are dying in peace. And he's having trouble squaring this circle. He says, uh, he talks about the bands of their death. There's no bands. Those word bands means fetters. They live an easy life and they die an easy death. And this is frustrating to Asaph because he's looking for, what is he doing? He's looking for a justification of his way of life. That's what he's doing. He's like, look at all the things that I've sacrificed. Look at all the things that I have not participated in. And then he's looking just around him, observing, and saying, well, then what's the point? Where is the effect that I thought would happen? Where's the deviation between the righteous and the wicked? All right, then verse 5, he says, They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. So Asaph observes their lack of suffering. The wicked, in this case, these are the prosperous wicked, don't have to deal with all the problems that the righteous man does. They're not cumbered by the burden of righteousness, and they seem to avoid the sickness and disease of the common man. They age better. They see little financial harm. There appears to be no end inside of their gain. You know, when, um, for example, when financial collapse happens, like 2008, when the mortgage crisis took place, who was harmed the most? Was it the deviant, prosperous people who some of them facilitated the event? Were they hurt disproportionately to the little guy? No. The little guy, the guy who just like, can I buy this house? And the lender said, sure you can. And they said, do I need to prove my income? The lender said, no. You don't need to prove your income. You see my credit? No. Are you breathing? You can have a mortgage. <laughs> they wanted to sell mortgages. So those guys weren't hurt nearly as much as the person who lost their home. Uh, you see this in stock market crashes. I think about there's a guy, I should, I should call him out, right? I should call him, I don't even know his name. Bill something. Bill Ackman, there it is. Bill Ackman. Anybody know who Bill Ackman is? You've probably seen him on TV. He's on Fox News or whatever. He's a financial guy. All right, so COVID hits, right? COVID hits. He calls into one of these financial shows, and he's almost in tears. You know, it just breaks my heart. To think that the people that are going to be hurt the worst are the housekeepers. The housekeepers and the people who clean the rooms at hotels and the service industry is just going to be destroyed. It's going to be, you know, I love Hilton. 
I love the Hilton brand. And he's, he's got his hand on the sell button on the computer. Sell, 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 sell. And so what he did was he was talking, oh, Hilton, Hilton's going to go to zero. It's going to crash. Hilton's, Hilton's going to go bankrupt. So everybody sells their Hilton stock. And what is he doing? Shorting. He's shorting the stock. So he has already put in a sell order saying, I'm betting this thing's going to go down. And then he's on TV in front of millions of people who are scared to death of COVID, crying almost. You can look it up on YouTube. It's actually hilarious. Saying this while he has a short position open against Hilton. He made, I think, over a billion dollars. He made over a billion dollars preying upon the fears of people who own mostly retail people, individual people, smaller people who owned Hilton stock and then sold out of fear because Bill Ackman said. We can look at that and say, well, yeah, well, he'll pay for it in this life. When? Maybe not. Maybe he just gets richer and richer and richer and richer. And you say, yeah, but maybe when he lays his head on his pillow at night, he can't sleep. Maybe he sleeps like a baby. Maybe he sleeps so good, sleeps better than you. This is Asaph's frustration. The Asaph's sitting back going, yeah, God, rain down the fire and brimstone. And it doesn't happen. And he's frustrated. You know, um, the trials and tribulations that fall on the common man sometimes, almost always seem to avoid those who are disproportionately well off. There's that saying, when the aristocracy catches a cold, the working class dies of pneumonia. And that's true. And this is Asaph's frustration, that the wicked man seems to have this ideal life. All right, so those are some of his observations that we might say their station or their position. But then we could look at their attitude. He notices then the consequence of that, of their position, how well off they are. And then Asaph's is frustrated. He's like, but look at their attitude about the whole thing. Notice he says, verse 6, Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. They wear their pride around their neck. They're not trying to hide it. They're broadcasting their pride in front of the world. Their lives are so easy and free of trouble, and that leads to them being prideful. And they live what the Bible says are overtly wicked lives without any fear of God. Why? Because their abundance seemingly rids them of the need for the Almighty. What do you need God for if you have everything? What do you need God for if you have $7 billion and money answereth all things? What do you need God for? Of course, we know the answer to that. But the under the sun perspective we'll talk about in a minute would say, well, this person has everything that heart could wish. I saw this, uh, this video, real TikTok thing a few years ago where the 16-year-old boy is sitting in his kitchen, this massive kitchen, and he holds up five fingers and he says, put down a finger if your dad bought you a Jeep for your 16th birthday. Puts down a finger. Put down a finger if you have, you know, a credit card with this kind of a limit. Put that in. Put down a finger if your closet is worth X amount of dollars. You know, and he just goes through all the way down. Now, here's the thing. We could say, yeah, but it's like, wait a second. This dude has everything that these kids want. He's got everything. And the fact that he has everything, who cares that it's his dad's and they pay for it or whatever. What do you, he drives a Jeep and you don't. What are you going to do about it, right? So he can put down the fingers proudly, and what are you going to say? Humanly speaking, what are you going to say? You can complain about how he got it. He's got it. He has it. And Asaph's like, pride goes before destruction, and he's waiting for the destruction. <laughs> Holy Spirit, for fall! Waiting for him to fall. And then it doesn't happen, and Asaph gets frustrated, and we do too. Verse 6, he says, their, uh, their violence covereth them as a garment. They're violent. They're violent in their temper. They're violent in business. They're willing to take somebody else's financial life like that with no consideration whatsoever as long as it benefits them. They're violent. The Bible says the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. They have no sympathy and no compassion. They will take advantage of you, and it seems that they get away with it. And that's something that we need to come to terms with, is that there are people who have done egregiously terrible things and gotten away with it scot-free. That's something that we need to understand. In this life, 
they will not experience any type of massive downside because of the wrong that they've done. And those of us who are sitting off to the side in this life, waiting for that thing to happen to them, observing their life as the person who maybe did us harm or did someone else harm, expecting the calamity to come at any minute, could be very disappointed when it doesn't show up. Verse 7, he says that the wicked are distinctive. So they're prideful, they're violent, but they're distinctive. He says their eyes stand out with fatness. That's a funny little phrase. But that's a, that's a Hebrewism. And it's really difficult, apparently, to translate exactly what they're saying into English, right? Because it's very, very, very Jewish, very, very Hebrew. But the idea is that their faces have become fat, and that's a symbol of their excess. Um, and we would read that as, you know, Westerners in the Western world, and we'd say, well, I mean, you know, who, who, wants, who wants that, right? But it's cultural, right? So like in the Philippines, if you've got a little belly, you know, and you got, uh, you got some, uh, you know, chubby cheeks and you're a little, little puffy, they assume that you're rich. They assume that you have plenty of money and access to food because, I mean, you know, you can obviously afford to eat a lot and they can't. Everybody over there is skinny. Like everybody. You walk down the street in the Philippines, everybody's thin. Everybody looks in shape. Now, they all have diabetes because they eat like 7,000 carbs a day, all that rice. They all have diabetes and kidney failure, but they're all thin. So if you see a Filipino who's got some weight on him, you're like, oh, he's doing pretty good. He's doing all right. You think about the old pictures of kings, like was it King Henry or those guys? I mean, they're big dudes. They're big dudes. And they weren't ashamed of their bigness. We are. We're like, oh my goodness. They were not ashamed of that. That was a symbol of their status. So Asaph's over there all just decrepit looking, anemic looking, thin, small. And he's looking at all the wicked. He's like, they're all fat and he's jealous, which is pretty funny. He says also that they're more abundant, verse 7. He says they have more than heart could wish. Think about that statement. Asaph, a priest, a prophet, a minister in the temple, says they have more than heart could wish. Wait a second. Asaph knows better than to say that. Asaph knows that's not a literal statement. That can't be true. He knows the heart's never full. He's a pastor to some extent. He knows human nature. He knows the heart is never full. The eyes are never full. So why is he saying this? Why is he saying they have more than heart could wish? The Bible says hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. So maybe what Asaph is saying is this. They have everything my heart is wishing for. Maybe that's what he's saying. They have everything that I want. That's the voice of envy. The voice of envy doesn't compare a rich person. It doesn't compare Jeff Bezos with Elon Musk and say, yeah, well, you know, even Jeff Bezos is jealous of Elon Musk. That's not the voice of envy. The voice of envy is, this person over there has all of the things that I want. Not, do they have what they want compared to someone else? And I think that's what Asaph is saying. They have what I want. And this might also carry the idea that there seems to be no obstacle between the desire of the wicked and their obtaining it. And that's a frustrating thing, right? Because there's things that you want. There's things that I want. And then we look at like, well, what would it take for me to get the thing that I want? And we go, well, basically it's impossible. I mean, I would love to have this car. And then we go on the little, uh, do the calculator. Estimate your payment. And you come in and click enter and it's like more than your mortgage. You're like, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Uh, literally, there's like, you're like, man, well, how much does that car cost? And you see, everybody's got one. Everybody's got one. Everybody has one of the cars that you want. And you go and you're like, how do these people afford? You look up like the average income in Georgia and you're like, there's a lot of fake rich people. <laughs> there's a lot of actual broke people running around in these nice cars. But they have what you want and there's no stumbling block between the statement of their desire and the obtaining of it. I was listening to a major sports media figure talking about how difficult it was for him to get the first few million dollars. He said it was really hard, it took 20, 30 years. And then he just sold a big part of his company for $550 million. He sold another part of it a few years ago for $330 million. This guy's now worth, you know, probably three, four, five hundred million dollars as an individual. He said it was really hard to make money in the beginning. He's like, but once you have money, making money is the easiest thing in the world. It's easy. Once you have a ton of money, he's like, I can make, I can make money however I want, whenever I want. It's easy. 
There's nothing standing in between him and the opportunity to make a ton of money because he represents a source of capital to people who also want money. This is Asaph's frustration. Well, here I am. I mean, I'm putting out the showbread. I mean, is that not worth anything? I mean, I filled up the incense this morning. I made sure that the, the lamp was full of oil and I lit it. I know I forgot that one that one time, but I didn't this morning. So what's the problem? What's the problem with me? He says they are corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. That phrase means they speak with no restraint. They have no restraint on their speech at all. I was playing golf one time, every time, all the time. And uh, so we were playing at this resort, really nice resort. And uh, I got to go for free. It was incredible. And this is a place, bucket list place for golfers to go. And uh, me and my brother-in-law are playing with these two other random guys, both from San Francisco, big businessmen. And we're talking. And they were very nice and cordial. But foul-mouthed, my God goodness they were saying words i'm like how did you spell that like what did you just say is that in the dictionary things i'd never heard before in my life and i work with bus kids okay things i never heard before in my life and i was like holy cow and it was just no restraint in their speech at all it made me very uncomfortable and it was a part of their prosperous station right the reason why they felt no compulsion to restrain their speech is because of how successful they were they go there every year, and they stay for like a week. And I'm doing the math in my head, like, holy cow. Like, that's, that's a part-time job <laughs> per person. And they were talking about what they did, and one guy said, well, yeah, I made this last quarter. And it's like, you, what the what? Like, oh, my goodness. So it's funny how that success can lead to a lack of restraint in speech and then even the blasphemy of God in heaven. Okay, so let's move on to Asaph's complaint. That says observation. He sees their status. He sees their attitude. Then he says, verse 13, his conclusion from this, his complaint is, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. Think about that. I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Here's what he's saying. Why then should I serve God? I've lived a clean life for nothing. Like, what's the point? To go through this? To live this kind of of a life to be afflicted and to be in pain and to suffer and to suffer loss and sometimes at the hand of those people, they're the ones who did this to me? Where's my reimbursement? Where's my recompense? What do I get? He says they're filthy and they're wicked and yet look at their life. And we can look at their clothes and their phone and their car and their house and the brands that they wear and their vacations and then we look at their life and it's full of wickedness and we think, well, then what's the point of living a righteous life? We hear the echoes of the voice of Job in Asaph's psalm. I almost entitled this Asaph's Fable. Play on Asaph's Fables. Because this is a fictional story he's telling, to some extent. But I want you to notice this. He is even questioning his calling, and therefore his purpose. He says, then what was the point of me washing my hands? Wait, what do you mean wash your hands? He's referring to the ordinances of cleanliness imposed upon the priest. What's the point of me being a priest? I'll tell you something. If you've been in ministry any length of time, you will get to the point where you will question your station and your calling and your purpose. And it's great when, you know, you preach a message and everybody comes forward and God moves or whatever, but then there's times where you get up and you preach your heart out and nobody budges. There's times where you go out and you visit and you visit and nobody comes. Maybe less people come. A good family leaves. And you think, well, then what in the world is the point? And then you look at people who, let's say, in other places and other institutions who, I might say, are cheating. Like Paul said, they're not striving lawfully. And yet, oh my goodness, look at the success. And you think, well, then what's the point of keeping my hands clean? What's the point of, of consecrating myself to God? What's the point? He's questioning his occupation, and more than that, his calling and his purpose. Verse 14, he says, For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. This makes me think that Asaph had some type of chronic condition. Like Paul, take this thorn from me. Take this thorn from my flesh. Verse 15, look at this. 
There's a gag order imposed on him by God that's frustrating him. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. So he says, I'm a priest. I'm frustrated. I'm thinking about quitting. He's like, but I can't tell anyone because if I do, I'm going to discourage them in their relationship with God. So who can I tell? I can't go to my congregants and say, hey, listen, guys, I'm having a really hard time. Thinking about quitting, to be honest, because, I mean, you know, pastoring kind of stinks. And, uh, I mean, look at all these people. They're wicked and they're rich. They're healthy. And, you know, I've got gout. Gout's the worst. And I'm just thinking, like, I'd rather be gout and rich. <laughs> have gout and be rich than have gout and be poor. So I'm out, you know, and I need y'all's advice. So he's like, if I tell anybody, I'm going to discourage them. And I can't do that. So he's imposing silence on himself, and that's frustrating him, obviously. Verse 16, here we go, the transition. He says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. When I really sat down and tried to figure this out, I just couldn't stand it. I couldn't take it. I couldn't reason my way out of this situation. Look, I love reason. I love logic. I love all of that. But there's a limitation. There's a limitation to human reason. The postmodernists aren't completely wrong. There is a limit to human reason. There are things that we will never know or be able to understand. And I don't like to admit that, (laughs) but that's true. And in this case, Asaph, probably much smarter than us, couldn't reason himself to a resolution. Listen, and get to the point where you say, well, I mean, when you consider this, that resolves the issue. He's like, there's nothing mentally, there's no mental gymnastics that I can perform that lead me to peace when I compare my life with the wicked. I can't reason my way out of this. Here's what he says. We come to the word that the entire song hinges on. Until. Until. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until. Until what, Asaph? What changed your mind? What lifted you out of this envious despair? He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Okay, so what is happening here? Asaph's mood, his outlook, and understanding of the world is transformed the moment he changes his perspective. The moment he shifts his observation from the life of the wicked and directs his attention to the sanctuary of God. The change in Asaph is a result of the change of his attention. And when he moves his attention away from the observation that the wicked's lives are prospering and onto the fact that there is a God who indwells the temple, it's not even a fact of now I understand. It is now I see something different. I'm giving my attention to him now. And when I give my attention to God, I'm okay. When I stop paying attention, and by the way, attention is something that you pay It's a limited resource. You pay attention. You don't have an unlimited source of it. It's scarce. It's worth something. That's why you pay attention. And he had spent almost all of his attention in the wrong place, and it wasn't until he shifted it to God that he achieved a resolution. So when Asaph fixed his eyes upon the wicked themselves, and he sees the terrestrial success and fame and money and power, of course he gets discouraged. Of course he questions his purpose. That's the natural conclusion. But the moment he walks into the sanctuary of God, something changes. And by sanctuary, we don't mean the building. That word is important for us to understand, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but the word there, sanctuary, in the Hebrew is plural. Sanctuaries. It's translated correctly but it's plural in the Hebrew, and it should be understood as a place close to and near to the presence of God. It is any holy place, right? The sanctuary was the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt above the mercy seat. It also referred to the area corporately where everybody would gather and hear the instruction of the word of God. So any place that's holy and consecrated to God where His presence meets with people, that's the sanctuary. Really, this whole sermon is about perspective. That's it. It's about perspective. It's about attention. It's about observation and comparison. 
And it's very important that you don't spend your attention, you don't spend your attention observing the wicked because then you'll compare their life to yours and be dissatisfied with the blessings of God. And Asaph said, the correct thing to do is to shift your attention away from that to something else. There's a, um, there's a scholastic understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes where the conclusion in the book is that everything is vanity, right? That's what Solomon says over and over again. Everything is vanity. All is vanity. Everything's vanity. Vanity, 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 vanity. It's like constant throughout the whole book. And really, that conclusion is reached through a perspective. What Solomon is doing, he's not telling you what's actually true. He's telling you what is true according to a certain perspective. And you know that because all throughout Ecclesiastes, he says, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. You find that phrase all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 12, where he says, if you look, take your eyes away from the sky, from the heavens, which the the Jews use the word heaven almost synonymously with God in some ways. There's that idea of looking up to God. He's like, if you take your eyes off of God and move it down to the terrestrial landscape and just look at the things under the sun, you will find vanity and emptiness and that's it. And he's exactly right. That a purely terrestrial perspective leads to the understanding that everything is vain. And that's the battle of Asaph here. That's what Asaph is struggling with. All right, but he says it changes in the sanctuary. He's talking about the presence of God. The solution to his dilemma was not found in human reason, but in the presence of God. And it was that presence and that power that changed his perspective. Listen, it isn't just about reading the Bible, quote unquote. It's about getting in the presence of him who is the word of God. It's not just about prayer, quote unquote. It's about getting in the presence of the Father. That's what it's about. And it's when you're in His presence that things change. You see that idea all throughout the Bible, that God's presence changes things. When God shows up, people move. Nobody stays the same. And we get discouraged sometimes when we read the Bible and when we pray and when we go to church, but these are the mechanisms by which we draw nigh to God. And if we're frustrated and we're dealing with this problem of envy, the root cause is a lack of close proximity to God. Because when you are in the presence of the most awesome being in the universe, how could you be envious of anyone else? And there's no amount of reason that gets you to that conclusion. So we have to stop looking there. We have to stop just going down, well, eventually I'll figure it out. Eventually it'll happen to them. Eventually they'll fail. It's like, yeah, in another life, everyone will be judged. That is true. But we need to be careful that our emotional health, well-being, our spiritual advantages aren't given up because we have chained ourselves to an under-the-sun perspective. I'll make this case too, and then we'll be done. I believe that this is also an argument in support of the church as an institution. Um, you know, we used to build cathedrals and we would paint these amazing things on the ceilings. And I've, I've been, I was in a cathedral in the Philippines that was, I think, built in like the 1500s. It's really old. And when you walk into one of those, where do your eyes go? Up. That's on purpose. That's on purpose. You walk into that cathedral and your eyes go up. And what do you see? Do you see stars and planets and clouds and the sun? No. You see heaven. You see angels. You see God. You see the Son of God. And I'm not agreeing with the theology, to some extent, of many of those places. But I'm, I'm agreeing with the psychology, let's say, that the purpose of church is to walk in and look up. And they knew that when they built it. That every other day of the week, we walk around with our heads down, our heads bowed. The highest we ever look is the horizon. And the cathedral and the beautiful ceiling and the painting called something deep within us to look up. To lift our eyes from looking at everyone else and everything else. We got to look up. I'm not so sure it's a good thing that we've moved away from that type of architecture. 
I'm increasingly not convinced of that. Because the bland warehouse with, you know, I don't want to give too many specifics, but where when you walk in, where are your eyes drawn? The platform. The platform. What's on the platform? A man. Men. More people. More people to observe and to compare myself with. I can't sing like her. I can't talk like him. I can't preach like that. I sat and watched Johnny Pope preach one time at youth conference. I thought, I need to quit. <laughs> I need to quit this guy. What? Well, that's observation and comparison. But what happens? What happens when we look up? What happens when we see him high and lifted up? It's not envy. It's humility. I am unclean. God, cleanse me. My point is this. All of us struggle with envy. Everybody struggles with envy. If you compare your situation to somebody else's situation, the natural conclusion in your heart will be envy or pride. If you're better than them, it's pride. If you're worse than them, it's envy. But what happens when we unchain our perspective from the horizon and we look up? We draw close to God. We go up into the mountain. We enter the cloud with Him. And we come down from the mountain with no pride, no envy, just a face shining with the glory of God. Anytime that you or I are feeling envy, the cure is found in drawing near unto God, like Asaph said. He said, so foolish was I and ignorant. <laughs> what an idiot I was. Yeah, that's where we end up. <laughs> when you look full in His wonderful place, you walk away going, I am so stupid. I was jealous of that person. I was envying that person. What was I thinking? Being jealous of the wicked? He says, their feet are in slippery places. In a moment, they lose everything. They're terrified they might lose what they have. And he's right. They that are far away from you, he says, will perish. Eternal consequences. But it is good for me, he says, to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Not the works of the wicked and not their prosperity, but I'm declaring the works of God. Look at what God has done. Who has built anything more beautiful than a tree? Who has built anything more beautiful than a sunset? And it's that God that I worship. It's that God that I serve. And I can be content with that. Hey guys, if you enjoyed that, make sure you rate, share, and follow the podcast. When you follow, You'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. And make sure you connect with us on social media at Zach Evans Podcast. God bless.